Good evening. It's going to be important for you to bear with me tonight because just before I left my house, I had this coughing kind of allergic reaction. I don't know what it's to. So I've been coughing ever since, and I've had two cough drops, and it hasn't done me very much good. Join me in the book of Hebrews. We're going to launch off from this morning doing what we do on Sunday evenings to begin by seeing if you have questions that kind of remain over or were provoked or maybe something that you thought about after we left the service today from this morning's message. This is just a great time to have something kind of rattling around in your head and say, I just really would like to ask about that and just feel free to bring it up and ask about it and we'll try to do the best we can to answer it. Any questions or thoughts about maybe fleshing out what we talked about this morning? I don't mind waiting. You're just kind of thinking it through. That time. Remember that awkwardness of just sitting there for 30 seconds? That was weird. Questions? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Well, one of the things that God did not do was give us any dates. The, the challenge that we have, and one of the things that I bring up when we talk about evolution and time and all of those, the carbon dating and all those things, is we have no idea how matter functioned prior to the fall. We know that there was some kind of shift in how um, the universe functions at the fall, because it says in Romans chapter 8, go there with me for a moment, it says that in Romans 8, one of the consequences of the fall was that something happened to the creation itself. When God is speaking to Adam and Eve, one of the things that He says to Adam is, the whole earth is going to change and it's going to bring something different than it did before. You're going to get thorns and thistles and you're going to do this by the sweat of your brow. So there's this shift that's part of the fall. And so Romans 8 talks about that in verse 20. It says, For the creation was subject to futility, not of its own will, but because of him who subjected it. So this is a statement that this is post-creation because at the end of the six days of creation, you get this statement that it was good, it was good, it was good, it was good. At the end of it, you get it was very good. Well, futility is not good or very good. So obviously, 
between that moment and now, because of the fall, the universe was subjected to futility. That means it's operating in a different way than it was before. It is operating in a futile way now. So that everyone who's born dies, everything that's built decays, and we're in a different thing. So when we start talking about dating and all those kind of things, we're kind of lost because we have no idea how matter functioned prior to the fall. And so I think it's best to just say this is what the Scripture says and trust that the Scripture says what it says, that the Lord made the things that He did. He did so in six days. How He did that, we can just ask Him when we get there. And so I just rest in exactly what the Word says. I, but, I, but I don't try to date that because I, I can't. Good question. But uh, that falls on the heels of what we read in Hebrews this morning, and that's what Bill brought up. If you'll go over to Hebrews chapter 2, he was quoting from Hebrews chapter 2, verse 10, from whom are all things and excuse me, for whom are all things and through whom are all things. So this means that it's for him and it's existing through him. So everything gets its existence from God for him and his purposes, and they are upheld by God for his purposes. So there's no part of the world that's like out of God's charge. And how and why he's working things out the way he does is a mystery to us. Good point, Bill. Other questions or observations? Maybe some particular text we talked about this morning or an illustration we used? Well, and, and the answer to your question, why they don't see, is what we've been studying in Sunday school. The very thing this morning. What did we study in Sunday school this morning? Numb to the truth of God's Word. Yep. Now, I was sharing with our Sunday school class this morning. It's so important. When we do evangelism, we need to understand we're not overcoming an issue of presentation problem. In order for a person to get saved, it's not just an issue of, well, how well did I share the gospel? How Did I do a great job at that? Did I get every single thing perfectly right? It is that we share the truth of the gospel. Jesus Christ, born of a virgin. Jesus Christ lived a sinless life. Jesus Christ, Son of the living God. God, Savior and King in the flesh. Died on the cross for our sins. Raised from the dead. We bring that out in several different ways. But we bring the truth, but the Spirit brings conviction. The Spirit brings conversion. The Spirit brings His work in the heart of an individual because other than that, people are blind. They are numb. So we have to depend on the work of God's Holy Spirit in conversion to bring about the illumination of the very Word that we preach and teach and share. Good point.
other questions from this morning? Matt? Yes, and and he does that later in the book too. Has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. He actually uses a past tense view of God's work in the individuals who believe in Christ. And so it's it's a completed work through the completed work of Jesus. I think, yeah, I think that that, that language probably follows the adoption language in Romans chapter 8. You have a similar kind of of phrasing where right after the adoption section in Romans 8, you have the bringing sons, the revealing of the sons of God and the glory to come. So it it could be. But I think it's also the language of the revelation of seeing Jesus as he is. When Jesus, in John 17, is praying and he said that they may be where I am and that they may behold my glory. And so I think it's the idea of bringing them to see the fullness. Kind of like this morning, there's a big difference between the shadow that we see of the baby in the womb versus the glory of the baby we hold um, uh, afterwards, after the, the birth process. And so there's a big change there. And so we see limited and then we see full glory afterwards. So I think the idea of bringing us to the fullness of who God is in Christ for us and and beholding that. That seems to be a theme that goes through the book of Hebrews. It's a good question. You want to follow it up? That is definitely it because that's the tension of until. The whole concept that I covered two Sundays ago and then today is that until passage. He is enthroned. It is a reality, but we have not yet experienced the fullness of that reality. And so it is the already and not yet that is in every believer's life. I'm already saved. I'm already set apart. I'm already sanctified. I'm already perfected. But I have not yet experienced the fullness of all that at this place in my life. Seated us. Yeah, and that's as an accomplished work. That, that's interesting. The passage that Matt's pointing out in Ephesians chapter 2 says, and seated us in the heavenly places with him. That's a past tense verb. You're already there. It is the done deal, but you've not yet experienced the fullness of that done deal. And that's a tension that's held in Hebrews all the way through the book. Very good. Other questions or maybe something that popped off of what Matt was talking about? That moment of awkward silence. Okay, well, join me over in Hebrews chapter 2.
We're going to do a couple of things. Peggy, this morning, as I was walking through the presentation, one of the things that I did is I skipped over a slide. Do you remember that? Would you walk me up to that slide? It's about uh, five clicks into it. I want to start off with this, um, kind of cover something we kind of passed over this morning that I think is very important and time did not allow me to really go into it even though I took a great deal of time. I didn't get to go into this. This is a statement <clears throat> from Larry Crabb in his book, Finding God. It was quoted in a Hebrews commentary by George Guthrie, is where I came into contact with it. It says, We've become committed to relieving the pain behind our problems rather than using our pain to wrestle more passionately with the character and purpose, purposes of God. Feeling better has become more important than finding God. And worse, we assume that people who find God always feel better. This is a great quote. And basically in this quote, what Larry Crabb is after is that when we encounter pain, we become more obsessed with getting out of the pain than understanding what God is telling us in the pain. C.S. Lewis, in uh, his really monumental work that he did about watching his wife pass away, I think it's called A Grief Observed. And in that book, one of the statements he makes is that there are different ways that God speaks to us, but one of the ways that God speaks to us is that He shouts to us in our pain. And very often, what happens to us is that rather than trying to see in the pain what God may be speaking to us, what He may be communicating what we're supposed to perceive from it, we become obsessed with getting the pain out of our lives and out of the way, and sometimes in unhealthy ways. Those unhealthy ways are false beliefs. I've been in situations where in order to soothe someone's aching heart, I've watched people tell them falsehoods. They've literally lied. They've lied about God. They've lied about the Scriptures. They've lied about... Uh, the, the, they've, they've budged on the truth in order to try to make the person have some sense of relief. I think this is what sets us up for the prosperity gospel and the kind of things that we see written in prosperity gospel teachings. It is a false comfort. Back in the book of Jeremiah, there were two kinds of false prophets. Jeremiah pointed out that there was one false prophet that would say, peace, peace, when there was no peace. In other words, they would try using words to say that something was not what it really was. The nation was having impending doom. Jeremiah and other prophets would get up and they would speak of that impending doom. 
And other prophets would come under or behind or in front of them and say, Oh, no, no, no. Economy's good. Stock market looks great. Everything's fine. And so they would proclaim peace when judgment was actually coming. There was another kind that Jeremiah called out. It says, they heal the wound of my people superficially. In other words, rather than dealing with the issues that are at the heart of the matter, they would only deal with the issues that were on the surface of the matter. And so people got a feeling for a moment, it's kind of like a if you've, if you've got a really bad infection, and rather than somebody shooting antibiotics down into your system, they actually just take and they put some topical medicine on it that, that does. I've got a, a, a little packet of uh, antibiotic that has pain reliever in it. Y'all have some of that? It, it actually numbs things, and, and it's topical. And so what happens is, is they would put things on that they, they simply numbed the pain, but they didn't cure the wound. So <clears throat> what happens is, is when pain comes, what we want is relief. And it sets us up for being deceived because of our perception. It sets us up for being deceived just because we want to get out of the pain. When the pain has a message or a purpose in it. Now let me share with you a particular passage of Scripture that I think speaks to this. Come with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 1. So, will you put that back up for me, Peggy? One more time, will you pull? Uh, the, the passage, the, the Dr. Crabb passage. <clears throat> We've become committed to relieving the pain behind our problems rather than using our pain to wrestle more passionately with the character and purposes of God. Feeling better has become more important than finding God. Now, I'm going to add something to this. This means we often spend exorbitant amounts of money on our comforts. The church today is incredibly insulated against the ills of the world that that a huge portion of the world live in every single day. And the church spends exorbitant amounts of money personally, individually, for our comfort so that we avoid any pain or hardship. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul says something that I think is very revealing about pain in our lives and in God's purposes. Now, let me say something before I go there. Only you and God can work out the reasons behind the pains. I'm not trying to do that right now. What I'm trying to say is, is that you and God need to do that. Rather than just getting rid of the pain. This is, this is why taking pills and alcohol and all kinds of other things are so seductive. Because they can temporarily relieve the pain. Many of the alcoholics that I know are simply pain management people. And they're just doing one thing. They're trying to manage the pain in their heart with just enough alcohol to begin to to numb that pain but still allow them to be functional. It's the same thing with lots of medications. One of the reasons that 
the one of the high, most highest descri- uh, prescribed drugs in America is, is, a, is a drug to relieve anxiety. Now, I'm not against that, so don't go back and say, well, Bart was preaching against anxiety drugs today. That's not what I'm doing. But I do believe when we see that much use of it, there's probably a lot of abuse of it. Because the pain is there, and rather than working through it and its reasons, its purposes, and finding God in it, I just want to get rid of it. I want to shuck it off. And if, if a, if a six-pack will do that or a couple of tablets will do that, then I'm going to go that route rather than working through it. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul says in verse 8, <clears throat> sorry about the voice tonight. For we do not want you to be unaware, brethren, of our affliction which came to us in Asia. Now listen as Paul begins to unfold this. We were burdened excessively. How far? Beyond our strength. We've got it on the screen. So that we despaired even of life. Do you see that? Paul's not you know, just using sort of a nice illustration about how hard it was. Their situation was so dire that they ran out of strength to deal with it. And they got to the place where they were despairing of life. In fact, the next phrase, go ahead, Peggy. Indeed, we had the sentence of death within ourselves. But Paul uses a phrase here to say, in order that we would not trust in ourselves. What's Paul saying here? He's saying that God allowed or sent or permitted, we don't know exactly how that worked out, circumstances that were so extreme that they, they felt like they had a death sentence. That they were burdened excessively beyond their strength. They're done. And then it says, here's the purpose of it. Paul, in wrestling through that, and back up one, one for me, in wrestling through that, he was able to say that we should not rely on ourselves, but, in, but on God who raises the dead. That the pain had a purpose in it. The suffering had a purpose in it. That Paul, in wrestling through it with God, came to understand that there was a purpose. The purpose was to get them to quit having self-confidence. Today, that's what we're trying to build in our kids. Let's give them all self-esteem and self-confidence. But here, God is saying, no, 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 no. They need to be broken of self-confidence. That they... May not rely on themselves, but on God. God was using painful experiences of suffering and affliction to shift their personal trust from their own abilities over where? To God. And these were extreme things that Paul is laying out. When Paul later recounts some of the things that they go through when he talks about the beatings and the imprisonments, when he goes through the, the whipping and the 39 lashes that he received from the Jews on the, the several occasions, I think five times and three times beaten with rods, and when he goes through all of that, 
we start thinking, wow. But, but Paul says God used these things purposefully. He used the pain of the circumstance to cause a shift in a sense of what we talked about this morning. A shift of focus from the circumstance to the Savior. So that we would trust in God through Christ. This is very, very difficult because of two things. One is we kind of, in this prosperity gospel thing that's really popular today in our culture, we think that God's kind of like... Here's my first first exposure to prosperity gospel. Sherry and I were visiting the church in Ohio many years ago, shortly after we were married, 22, 23, 24 years ago. And and we were visiting, and, and the preacher said, God is like a good parent who only wants good things for his children. So if you will just all obey, God will give you all these things. And he made God out to be this kind of Santa Claus guy. Better watch out. You better not cry. You better not tell. I'm telling you why. Daddy Claus is coming to town. He sees you when you sleep. And it's this idea that if you'll do all these right things, God's going to pour stuff out on you. And by doing the right thing, God is obligated to respond to you by giving you what you want. That's not God. God is committed to your holiness. God is committed to your spiritual well-being. God is committed to preparing you to meet Him and preparing you to heaven. And that is what He will labor for. In fact, when we get to the end of the book of Hebrews, it says He disciplines us so that we may share His holiness. And then He talks about how hard that discipline is. How harsh that discipline is at times. That it's really tough discipline. But it's all moving us toward holiness. So here, roll back to the... Dr. Crabb quote. By the way, Peggy, thank you. You're doing a good job and I appreciate all your work. Here we go. She had to totally shift program, so here we go. We have become committed to relieving the pain behind our problems rather than to using our pain to wrestle more passionately with the character and purposes of God. Feeling better has become more important than finding God. That's the kind of the heart of the quote. The feeling better, more important than finding God. In the last part of the quote, what does he say? He says, and worse, we assume that people who find God always feel better. Paul found God. Did he always feel better? No. In fact, his life seemed pretty comfortable until the Damascus Road. He had everything going for him prior to meeting Jesus. And after that, he had a life where the Bible says that the Holy Spirit revealed to him how much he must suffer for the sake of Christ. Now, I don't want this to sound all glum, because the goal is to prepare us for the glory. So I don't want us to think that it's somehow purposeless. There is purpose behind this. So what I need to do is move in and close tonight with three statements that um, sort of summarize where we've been going through this whole thing and kind of flesh those out a little bit more. When I started the book of Hebrews, I shared with you that it's written to folks who are suffering. And in their suffering, 
they are beginning to waver somewhat in their faith and in their fervency, in their gathering, in their worship experiences. They're beginning to waver some. And so the book is written to say three primary things, and I've been piling those on you, and and I'm going to do that until we finish and so that in the end, we're all going to be able to kind of stand up and say together these three things. The first is, Jesus is worthy to be worshipped as a better Savior because of who He is. I want to put that on hold for a second and take you to a conversation that Steve and I had in my office a few weeks ago. Uh, Often we'll sit around and kind of discuss what we've been teaching and what we've been preaching and just kind of bat it around. And Steve said, well, let me kind of tell you what I processed when you introduced this and, and what I know what you mean, but maybe you need to clarify. And I thought, this is good because I like to know how I'm being perceived, not just what I've said. And so Steve said, when we say this statement, Jesus is better, is, are we talking about maybe just a little bit better? Like, okay, Jesus is a better Savior, but there's like some other Saviors who will do almost as good of a job. It was a great question, by the way. If Jesus is a better Savior, maybe he's better than the next guy down the list, but that guy could still get you to heaven, right? That, so, so maybe, you know what, how much better are we talking about when we say Jesus is to be worshipped as a better Savior because of who he is? And so I thought about that, and, and I said, okay, I need to really clarify the whole better thing because as I shared with you early in the book of Hebrews about five weeks ago, one of the things that happens is that he uses the word better Many times, 13 times through the book. And each time, he's honing in on one of the three things. Now, let me go back over the three statements. Jesus is to be worshipped as a better Savior because of who he is. Second statement, Jesus is to be trusted as a better salvation because of what he's done. Third, Jesus is to be enduringly hoped in for a better situation because of where he's taking us. Those are the three statements that have been kind of hanging over all that we're doing. Well, each time the word better is used, he's talking toward one or more of those things. Savior, salvation, or situation. But I want to qualify the word better. Um, Better as in quality. I don't know if you've ever built a sandcastle. But if you build a sandcastle, what always happens to it when the tide comes in? What happens? It just washes out. Okay, so I want to say better is like the difference between a sandcastle and a stone castle. There's some stone castles that are still around that are just literally, some of them uh, are pressing into the thousands of years in their stones actually being together, some of them uh, in the hundreds of years. There's stone castles. So better in the sense of quality. Sand castle, psh, stone castle lasts. But even more so than that. But that's just one. Uh, better in the sense of effectiveness. A diamond is much better at cutting glass than a Q-tip, right? Am I right? Well, can, you, can you effectively cut glass with a Q-tip? Well, no, you can't. Can you effectively cut glass with a diamond? Well, yeah, so there's this sense of effectiveness. When we say Jesus is better, we're talking not just quality, but effectiveness. 
the final <clears throat> is end result. It's better to take an airplane to Hawaii than to drive a car. Am I right? Is a car going to get you there? What's the end result of driving your car to Hawaii? Yeah, you can drive into the ocean. You're not getting to Hawaii, okay? That's it. And so, end results. When we talk about better in these three statements, and I need to go back over them and add a little phrase to each one of these, we're talking about quality, effectiveness, and end result. Quality, sandcastle, stone castle. Effectiveness, diamond cutting glass, Q-tip cutting glass. End result, airplane to Hawaii versus driving a car. Now, don't give me the airplane might crash thing. I understand that, but Jesus is not going to crash, okay? He's going to get you there. All right. Now, I want to add a statement at the end of those three statements, and I didn't put it on screen tonight, but here we go. Jesus is worthy to be worshipped as a better Savior because of who he is. And the next statement is, every other being will fail you. This is very important. Every other being will fail you. One of the things that the writer of the Hebrews is trying to get them to do in trusting in Christ and seeing Christ both in his humility coming for our salvation and in his glory of being who he is is he's trying to make sure that you understand there are no other beings who are options. The being that he starts comparing with, he compares with the being of the angels. He can't compare him with God because he said he is God. So that's not a comparison between Jesus and God because he is God. Okay? He compares him with the angels and he says, far superior. Later on, he compares him with Moses, far superior. Later on, he compares him with Melchizedek, far superior. Later on, he compares him with the high priest, far superior. And so he says, there is no other being. You can line up Muhammad, you can line up Buddha, you can bring in Mary, you can line up angels, demons, and other humans. All of those beings will fail you because they are not saviors. Only Jesus is the Savior. And he's worthy of our worship because of who he is. Every other being will fail you. Not might. Will. Second, Jesus is worthy to be trusted for a better salvation because of what he has done. Every other thing will fail you. So, okay, the first realm is who he is, and so can I find another being that I can put my trust in? No. Okay, so going to move down and say what he has done. Can I find another thing to trust in? Can I trust in morality, goodness, works, karma, deeds, reincarnation? Can I trust some thing, some mechanism to get this to take, take my soul where it needs to go, to save it? And every other thing will fail doesn't matter how hard you try with works, how good you are at morality, how well you practice goodness, how many gifts you give, or how much karma you're depending on, how many deeds that you stockpile. No other thing can save you. If you are trusting in your works, your goodness, your deeds, or some mechanism... It's not going to work. 
Jesus is worthy to be trusted for a better salvation because of what he has done. Jesus paid for our sins in his body on the cross. Jesus was our substitute. He was a fitting substitute because he was sinless, yet had been tempted. He was a fitting substitute because he was God in human flesh. He was a fitting substitute because he kept the law and obeyed his Father in every and all things. And so Jesus is to be trusted for a better salvation because of what he has done. Every other thing will fail you. Not might, it will. Some of those things, let me just mention, some of those beings that people trust in, some trust in Joseph Smith, an untold number of hordes trust in Muhammad. Some grow up in a religion where Mary is thought to be able to save. Buddha is highly regarded as the path brings life. Some of these beings will give some sense that everything's okay until the last judgment. But at that day, those beings will fail you. At the last day, those things will fail you. Your works, your morality, your goodness, gifts, karma, reincarnation, deeds. So... Let's close with a third one. <clears throat> Jesus is worthy to be enduringly hoped in. Now, that phrase is very important to me because I think that's the nature of the book of Hebrews. Enduringly hoped in. The whole idea that's unfolding from the very first verse of the book of Hebrews is for you to hope in Him by faith because of who He is and what He's done and that you stay enduringly attached to Him all the way through all of the sufferings of this life. Jesus is worthy to be enduringly hoped in for a better situation because of where He is taking us. Now remember when I introduced this, the idea was that these guys were in a bad situation. And they knew that if they would simply renounce Jesus, that their situation would improve. That's all they had to do. As the hot breath of Satan fell on the church in just a few decades after this letter is written, and people were burned at the stake and thrown to the lions, there was just one thing that would relieve their situation. Deny Christ and give glory to the emperor. That's all you got to do. Just do that little thing. It's not a big deal. Just do it. One of my favorite pictures I've ever seen is on the cover of a Keith Green album. The, the, the album is called No Compromise. And it's a great picture of the, the setting where Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are before the king and they've got the great idol and they, they, they're told to all fall down and worship the idol and, and you can see that the moment to fall down and worship the idol has already occurred. And everybody around them, they're all on their knees before the idol. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are just kind of standing there. 
just standing there. They won't bend their knee to the idol. But there's a most interesting thing. If you look carefully at the album cover, the, the, one of the men that is on his knees is reaching up with a very earnest look on his face, looking at Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and with his face pleading, no, just do this. It's just a simple thing. Just bend the knee and you'll be relieved of the bad situation that you're headed for. One of the challenges for us is to understand that when our situation gets very, very difficult, we may be tempted to compromise our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ in order for our temporal situation to get better. But what the Bible is teaching is God has a better situation coming, and it's not the one you have now. The one you've been promised will not occur in this life. That is a point, a definite point of the book of Hebrews. He says it. It's not coming in this life. It's coming in the next one. So enduringly hope in Christ. Now, what I finish that statement off with, with another line, Jesus is worthy to be enduringly hoped in for a better situation because of where he is taking us. And I've added this line, everything you are seeing will fail you. Now, I used this line to, to, to point back to that we're living in the we're living in the the now, the until, and everything that we see is going to be gone one day. No matter how powerful a person looks today, that's going to be gone. No matter how enticing something looks right now, that's going to be gone. Everything that we see will fail us. We have to look at the unseen. That's why Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, while we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are unseen, because the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are unseen are eternal. We cannot put our trust in the size of a house or the shininess of a car or the, the, the attractiveness of an individual. Those things are fleeting. They're going away. One day they'll be gone. There'll be no more. And so everything that we're seeing will fail us. If we put our trust in any earthly, temporal thing, there is the assurance that that thing will fail us because we are called to look at the unseen, at Jesus Christ, who will never leave or forsake. Bringing all those together. Here is what the writer of the Hebrews is taking us into now. When we step into next week and in the coming weeks, the writer to the Hebrews is going to begin to flesh out how Jesus is coming to the earth and humbling Himself was to bring Him to a place where while He is sitting on His throne right now, He can actually, personally sympathize with what you're feeling today. What, what we're going to be introduced to this coming week is that Jesus' personal experiences in a human body were in part so that He can, at this moment, as your High Priest, personally 
sympathize with your present pain. And what's glorious about that is we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all ways as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and may find grace to help us in our time of need. The point is, because of Jesus' earthly walk, He understands what you're asking for in a personal, intimate, sympathetic way. So that when you pray to Him about what you're going through, He can sympathize as He talks to God the Father on our behalf. Let's bow together. He's worthy of our worship. He's worthy of our trust. He's worthy of our enduring hope.